Hello, everyone, and welcome to NEIS Member Voices, an NEIS podcast focusing on you, the important individuals that make up the independent school community. I'm Scott Donaldson, NEIS Member Engagement Coordinator, and today I'll be speaking with Maria Brandon, head of school at Woodland School in Portola Valley, California. Maria, welcome to Member Voices. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, So I wanted to dive uh, right into your backstory. You have a really fascinating backstory, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your upbringing and and what specifically about that has sort of fueled you and uh, informs your work today. Well, I'm delighted to. Uh, I think I came to being a head of school probably in an unusual way in that I was a pretty terrible student. I was raised as a Quaker kid in a Quaker family. I think we were probably Quaker light. And, but we went to Quaker schools. And, you, you know, I had two very academic older brothers who used to tease me that I was probably dropped off by aliens because I was a terrible student. And while they were really super academic and everything came really easily to them, everything came really tough to me. I had trouble learning to read. I had trouble paying attention in class. And by the time I got to high school, I was every teacher's nightmare. Not because I was a bad kid, but because I was that kid who would distract other kids. You know, I would look out the window. I wouldn't pay attention. I had trouble just focusing and it took me hours to do work. You couldn't read my handwriting. And it was bad business to throw Quaker kids out of Quaker schools. There weren't that many of us. And um, my teachers sort of didn't know what to do with me. And at that point, they weren't diagnosing kids the way they were now. And so I was pretty much, my parents were told I was lazy, which made me work harder and harder and harder and spend hours and hours and hours doing work um, to the point that I was developing ulcers. But I still really wasn't doing that well. By 10th grade, I, there was a deaf school near my school. And I, you know, I remember going to my guidance counselor and saying, you know, do you think it'd be okay if I, I volunteered one day a week at, at the school next door? And uh, she's like, oh, please go see if they'll take you two days a week. That's how desperate they were to get rid of me. <laughs> you know, and I ended up doing that. But it wasn't really until I got to college that I got diagnosed. And I was diagnosed with both dyslexia and uh, what they then called split focus, which I now probably think they call ADD, and dysgraphia. And, but getting those words and an understanding for how my brain worked was life-changing for me because unlike what my brother said, I was not dropped off by aliens. Um, I was not stupid and incapable, it meant my brain worked differently. And if my brain worked differently, that just opened up a world of curiosity for me because my brain worked differently. Well, did other brains work differently? And that really began to fuel a whole world of interest for me. And I'd always loved working with kids. And in fact, in high school, when nothing else was going well, uh, the one place that I found sort of my shelter, you know, my, my sanctuary had been student teaching. My high school sanctuary had been going to the lower school and student teaching in the art classroom with the little kids. And because there, you know, you didn't get judged. They, they welcomed you. And I loved working with the kids. And so now I had all these questions like, well, if there are these 15 different kids in the classroom, are there 15 different brains? 
And so this really began my interest in, well, are all these brains different? And so now I really started to ask all these questions about brains. And that really sort of began to fuel an interest for me in neuroscience. And that's where I started to go really down this rabbit hole of looking at all these different brains and how all brains are different. And was it just my brain was different or, you know, really want to know more about my brain, but then really want to know more about all brains that sort of began that interest and really what became a passion ultimately. I did notice that uh, that you've written about brain differences. Uh, I see that you have a blog on uh, your school's website where you've talked about how all brains are different. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that informs your work in, uh, as a head of school, how you deal with uh, different students that have different brains. I think as teachers, all teachers, you know, I, I, I think in any field, you, you really need to start learning about the organ you're working with in any field you're doing, right? I mean, isn't that sort of like the, the medical school model of any field you're working with, right? You, you learn about the organ first. And as teachers, the organ we're dealing with primarily is the brain. So we start there. Um, and we start, you, you begin with sort of a brain-based understanding of what you're looking at. And while, if you think about the brain as a roadmap, while the brain is constructed primarily the same, there are some differences in all brains and understanding those differences gives us a place to start and understanding the similarities gives us a place to start. Understanding how that brain wants to learn and grow gives us an understanding for how we teach and what we teach. You know, brains learn in certain ways. Brains learn in an integrated fashion. Brains want to move. You know, there are some basic, you know, brain rules. One of my mentors, John Medina, wrote a great book about brain rules. There are some really wonderful things we can learn and understand about how brains operate in general, and then some things in more specific. And you know, there are obviously brain pathologies, but then there are certain things where there are brain differences that we can understand. And there are certain schools that if you have kids with very dramatic brain differences, you need to teach to those very dramatic brain differences. And then there there are schools that if you have kids with only slight brain differences, you need to understand. But kids who have even, you know, mild to moderate brain differences, there's an understanding you even need to have about that because even mild to moderate brain differences, and, I, and this is you know one of the things I wrote about in that blog, mm-hmm. it adds anxiety for kids. And I just think that that's an understanding that parents and teachers both need to have because it adds a layer that those students have that that just kids bring to work. You know, there's a million miles between that whiteboard and the brain. Um, And so that's just an understanding parents and teachers both need to develop. What else is going on in there? I think it's really fascinating work and I could probably keep asking you questions about it, but uh, you also mentioned that uh, you grew up uh, a Quaker uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that has um, influenced your work um, and, specifically as it pertains to uh, social justice? Well, 
Absolutely. Um, I think one of the, the biggest ways that that has influenced me is I have a real passion for anti-bias work. Um, and probably one of the ways you will notice it is it is reflected in my, my family, which is I have three uh, uh, transracially adopted children. Uh, three are African-American. One is uh, white. I have a deaf husband. You know, I don't bring work home with me. I bring home to work every day. And so in my kids, I see everybody else's kids. And in everyone else's kids, I see my kids. So issues of social justice are, are very near and dear to my heart. And, and so teaching, you know, bringing that anti-bias lens into the classroom, into professional development, into how we talk about children and faculty, you know, whether it's professional development, staff training, whether it's how we, we, we talk with our parents, uh, training board members, it's at every level it becomes important. It has to start, obviously, with training ourselves, and it's a lifelong journey. I, I live those mistakes out loud daily. My children continue to point that out to me. Um, <laughs> Does it come from my Quaker background? It certainly began there, no doubt. I mean, I think Quakerism is a, it's a life philosophy beyond a, a religion, I would say. But it, it certainly began there, but it's, it's about a passion for social justice on all levels. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? I know that you've worked in both private and public schools. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in those and the, and the differences you noticed? I have taught in uh, independent schools. I've taught in public schools. I have uh, taught in a deaf school in inner city Philadelphia. Um, I've had up to 50 kids in a classroom in a public school. Hmm. I've had really small classrooms. I've done rural. I've done lockups in um, transitional housing for prisons. Uh, so I've done a wide variety of classroom settings. Uh, I've taught science and I've been a 30-year sexuality educator, so I've done, I've done the realm of teaching that you can imagine, um, and I've taught three-year-olds through college, so um, I actually love it all, and if you had to pin me down, I would tell you that middle school is my favorite age group, um, mo mostly because they're nobody else's favorite age group, but they, they really are my favorite age group. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, just the, the breadth of your experience uh, is really impressive. Uh, and could you talk a little bit about your uh, transition from being a teacher to um, to working in uh, administration, how you got your first position as a head of school, or were there administrative roles before that? Sure. I was a dean of students at a uh, boarding and day school where I also taught, and I was really concerned that I would miss the classroom. Um, and I think a lot of teachers feel that way, but I was really itching to try my hand at administrative roles. So I made sure that while I was dean, I still also got to teach. Um, and I loved being dean uh, because I still had so much hands-on time with the kids. And it was really interesting because I found, and I think this is what a lot of young administrators find, is like they don't want to give up the classroom, but they really want to do administration. Then they really love doing the administration, but they find they can't do everything because it, they, they end up with like zero time. 
And so I went from that to, believe it or not, my first head of school role was I, I founded my own school in Seattle. Um, and it was a, it was a founding head role. Uh, and that was, um, you know, they say, if you know what you're getting into, you'd never do it, but it, but it was just a total blast. Uh, so I was a founding head of school, um, and uh, that was about as hands-on as you get. So I think as a transitional role, it was great. It was, uh, you know, founding, founding headship, where I got, to, I got to take all those ideas that I ever wanted to do, which was a school with an anti-bias mission statement and tying everything I wanted to do with neuroscience to how we teach and what we teach, an original curriculum, and uh, putting, putting it all into practice and, and, uh, and sort of laying everything on the line and saying, I'm going to take a giant gamble and see if it works. And it absolutely worked. So that was the transition. Wow. And, and, and any advice on uh, being a founding head of school based on your experience for anyone who, who might be listening and uh, considering that or, or uh, you know, in the early stages of that? Here's the formula. Two-thirds passion, one-third caffeine. <laughs> and an SUV helps because you end up getting a lot of, like we, we ended up getting a lot of donations and putting them all in my truck and living room. And then, you know, I mean, I had to, it, it was literally, um, we, everything we got was donated and, you know, a lot of fundraising and a lot of secondhand computers and, you know, furniture and that's how it got put together. Um, but it's now a thriving, amazing school that lived on long after I left it, which was the goal. You know, that is the goal. Do not create a school um, that you expect to be about you. If you're going to create a school, create a school that you expect to be an institution. And that's what it is. It's fabulous. Again, uh, yeah, really impressive and, and, and super exciting, too, for the school. Could you talk a little bit about your work at uh, the Pennsylvania School for the Deaf and, and how you found uh, that role and, uh, I guess, the, the challenges and exciting opportunities that that sort of a school presents? That was a really challenging school. For one, it was not working in my first language. Uh, you know, American Sign Language is not my first language. Obviously, English is my first language. And anytime you're not working in your first language, it's going to be tough. And that was uh, a school that needed a lot of support. And I was there to be an interim head. Uh, and really the best person to head a deaf school should be a deaf head of school, as I told them when I was hired. Um, but I came in there to help them uh, solidify a curriculum, get a great team in place, support the students, um, developed some systems that they needed. It really needed everything on a lot of different levels. And I thought it, you know, they thought it would take a year. Uh, it was, became very clear that it was going to take a lot more than a year. And so I ended up staying four years until those items really were in place. And I felt I could walk away comfortably with those items in place uh, and felt like, okay, now I can leave it and feel good about it. And, and that's the point that I, I did. Um, but it was an amazing experience. And then uh, how did you find Woodland School? Or did they find you? Uh, I think both. <laughs> I think we found <laughs> each other. And it was really a, it, I was looking for a school that was gonna make my heart sing. 
and um, Woodland came onto the scene, and initially it was sort of, oh, Woodland, okay, yeah, all right. But they invited me out, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll go look. But it, but it wasn't the school with all the sort of the top shiny materials that I was like, wow, Woodland, I can't wait to get out there and see. But I came out to look, and um, when I got out here, it was amazing, and not because it was this amazing bricks and mortar, wait till you see the, you know, the school itself, you'll be blown away. That wasn't it at all. It was the students and the faculty and the parent community blew me out of the water. The students here were the most authentic. They looked you in the eye. They could have a real conversation with you. They asked me sincere questions. Um, when, when I said, you know, good morning, how are you? They not only answered me, they asked me how I was, and then they waited for an answer back. Hmm. Um, the, it was the real deal. Like what I found here was so authentic. It was the real deal. And the parent community cared so deeply. When I tell you that they had this full house for the parent interview, I mean, I'm not kidding. And the, the faculty cared so deeply about their craft and who was going to take over this school. You know, it hadn't been the school with all the glitz and the glamour and all of this, but it was the school that had what counted. It was the school that had the very authentic, deep, real sort of humble and real community here and yet here in Silicon Valley. And do you know what my favorite part of the day is? Can I tell you my favorite part? Please. I shake hands, I shake hands with every single student every morning as they come in. Oh, I love that. And I bet they love it too. Every single morning. And I teach them how to do a handshake and I shake hands with every student in the morning. It's great. <laughs> was that something that you started uh, when you started at Woodland School or have you always done that? What was the impetus for that? To me, it gives, it gives me a quite literally a pulse on every kid. Like I, I, to me, handshakes are really important sort of going into the business world. I mean, it's always been my thing that kids need to know certain old fashioned. My mom was terribly old fashioned. <laughs> and while she and I disagreed on many things, I'm very grateful for certain things she taught me. Uh, and I talk about her a lot with kids, but, uh, I am grateful that she taught me Western table manners. I'm grateful she taught me how to do a firm handshake. I am grateful she taught me many things. There are many other things I have issue with. However, this, this uh, program is not long enough for that list. Um, <laughs> but a firm handshake, looking people in the eye, uh, that takes you quite, quite a ways. And I think kids need to know that. And sometimes that gets lost these days. So I think... Teaching kids that is very important. So we do teach kids that. Later on, I will also teach them Western table manners because I think at some point during a job interview, that will be important to them as well. I think that's smart. Uh, and, and yeah, again, I, I love the, the handshakes of the door. I think that's a really nice touch. And um, again, also translates to um, skills they could need in the future. So that's terrific. Um, when you're facing challenges uh, in your role or at your school, um, or even just, you know, on a, on a daily basis, on a normal day, is there somewhere that you look to for, for inspiration or somewhere that you consistently turn? I 
consistently, well, I'm a very impatient person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so my, my personal challenge is always to slow down and to use my colleagues, uh, both here at school and my, both my CAIS colleagues and to use NAIS colleagues, to use all of my colleagues as sounding boards because there's always someone, I mean, mean, quite honestly, there's always someone who's gone down the path before me. There are always people smarter than me and wiser than me. Um, And so to try and, uh, you know, tap into those folks wherever possible um, because there isn't recreating the wheel and, and there are folks here at school who have incredible creativity ideas. Um, they know the school way better than I do. They know, and they're just incredibly creative. And then there are folks who've been heads way longer than I have, who have seen so many different things, you know, whether they've been heads or not, quite honestly, uh, they just have incredible creativity and ideas. And so, um, there's just great, great wisdom and, and knowledge uh, all around. So I think for me, the lesson is to slow down and look around and use that. I think that's a very wise approach. And, and I'm happy to hear that NAIS has provided you with the ability to, to make connections and to um, reach out to people that, and have that sounding board. Uh, another uh, thing that NAIS tries to do is to be a conduit for innovation and uh, I, I want to talk to you a little about innovation because I know that you've spoken and, and written about it. Could you talk a little bit about innovation in your work or how Woodland School is, is innovating uh, wherever you want to take that? Innovation, I think we take it in a different way. I mean, I know lots of people look at it as steam and stream and, you know, at some point they're going to add so many letters to that word that, you, you know, you're going to run out of words, <laughs> although it's a great challenge in anagramming. Um, but I think... Uh, I think we we look at it in lots of ways. Um, we are trying to 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 look at it in a new way. We're trying to get our kids to make the world a better place, but not just through technology. Um, you know, technology to us is ubiquitous. It's sort of everywhere, and we use it everywhere. We're trying to take our kids and have them be better people in all. And sort of in all ways and all fields, using their passions to innovate at every level. So it's not just like, okay, now and we're going to use a 3D printer and innovate this way. Yep, that's great. We got those. <laughs> but what are you going to do with them? Right. What are you doing to make the world better as a person? What are you doing? How are you developing your core virtues, if you will, your empathy, your humanity, your, are you able to stand up for something you believe in? Um, What sustainable solutions are you coming up with to make the world better? And are you not waiting till you're 40 to do them? Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what are you doing about them? now, tomorrow, next week, next year, like, you know, show me. Um, How are you speaking out about them now? How are you thinking about them now? Um, What's it mean to be in not just a bystander, but an upstander? Um, Show me that in your classroom. Show me that as a kindergartner. Show me what that looks like as a kindergartner 
Now show me what that looks like as a third grader. Now show me what that looks like as an eighth grader. And then can you show me what it will look like as a 10th grader? Then show me what it looks like as a 40 year old because it, it doesn't count unless you keep it going. So it, it's about keeping that thread, developing that thread that is more than just the science fair project. And actually that transitions well into another question that I had, which was that you had a blog post about uh, manners as well um, and how to make uh, manners meaningful. So uh, you may have already touched on this in, in your last answer, but do you want to talk about that a little bit as well? I think lots of people teach manners as um, mechanical responses, you know, say please, say thank you, you know, right, moving on. And, and to me, that means nothing if you don't understand the person on the other end of it. Why are you saying that? What's behind that? Where's the empathy that, that is the foundation for doing all of that? It just means nothing. It, it is, it is uh, window treatment. And so it is, it is the respect and the understanding of the person on the other side of it, which is the whole reason for that. And it just comes up over and over again when we did our focus groups in our mission and vision work, the kids kept bringing it up. The kids brought up the fact that here they felt seen. They felt seen for who they are. They felt respected. They felt respected for, for their whole person and, and who they, that, that they could be themselves um, and that they saw others and others could be themselves. And so the walking into the office and saying, please, may I have, not because they were taught to say please and thank you, but because it meant something was a big deal, you know? Hmm. Um, it's about developing that empathy, which you then carry that thread forward your whole life. That's huge. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I really enjoyed uh, reading that blog post. So, so thank you. Um, and I'm wondering if you I'm have... I'm so happy somebody's reading my blog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering if you have a, a proudest moment so far, something that sticks out to you that you're particularly proud of. Gosh, the proudest moment. Um, I love just the most, and it's not exactly a moment, but this is just a really joy-filled place. I mean, I know the word joyful, but this is a joy-filled school. Like, you come onto campus, and the environment is joy-filled. And that, it just resonates. It's it's there's so much laughter and joy and it doesn't mean it's not without its challenges it doesn't mean it's not without its hard moments or its bumpiness but it's joy filled and that to me is it just makes it all worthwhile it makes driving to work delightful and it makes the the bumpiness and the tough days and the the driving home exhausted worth it um, it's the joy. Um, you know, I, I remember there was a, I had an eighth grader, um, it, one morning he got out of his car and, um, 
his mom's like, he, he sort of had a grumpy look on his face and his mom's like, goodbye. I said, goodbye. And he, he didn't say anything. He turned his back on his mom and he walked up to me and gave me a big smile and a firm handshake. He said, good morning, Ms. Maria. And, uh, and his mom's standing there with her hands on his hips behind him. And she goes, and he walks past me and she looks at me and she goes, well, somebody got a good morning. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the little first raider who, who popped out of his car one the morning after February break, the first morning after February break, he popped out of his car, came running over to me, he goes, Do you miss me? <laughs> like, you know. I love it. Yeah, obviously they're excited to be there. That's great. They're filled with that joy that you're talking about. That's definitely something to be proud of. I mean, exactly. They run to school. They don't run from school here. And that's what, what other sign do you need? You know? <laughs> terrific. No, I love hearing stories like that. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me on. This was really fun. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I want to also thank everybody for listening to this episode of NEIS Member Voices and just let them know, uh, let you all know that we've included some great resources on uh, some of the areas that we discussed at neis.org backslash member voices. Uh, So be sure to keep an eye on that page for uh, new podcast episodes. And also, please always feel free to send us your thoughts or comments or questions. Uh, You can send them to us at membership at neis.org. Maria, thanks again. Thank you.